Uh, what a cool idea. Good morning, everybody. My name is Paul. It's lovely to be with you and a great privilege to be able to share with you. Um, we'll probably get to know each other a little more as this goes on, but I would like to start by reading you some lyrics, if that's okay. Uh, I think you'll be familiar with the first part. Uh, you, yeah, I think you'll, you'll know these words, and then I'll read a slightly different version of kind of the same song, which is actually more widely and sort of more, uh, it's older and it's more well-known, but it might be news to some of you. Is that okay? So get into your comfy place. Uh, can you close your eyes or... I don't know, adopt any specific position. Uh, you're welcome to do that, depending on the position. Um, but here we go. And through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you, and it's well with me. And far be it from me to not believe, even when my eyes can't see. And this mountain that's in front of me will be thrown into the midst of the sea. And through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you. And through it all, through it all, it is well, it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate, and has shed his own blood for my soul. It's well. It's well with my soul. My sin, oh bless this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul, it is well. It's well with my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trumpet shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. The um, first part was written by Bethel Music. The longer second part that you heard is a very old song written by a guy called Christopher Stafford on board a ship. But the backstory to that is there'd been a great fire in Chicago, I think, which had just bankrupted him. He sent his wife and four children across to England on board a vessel which had crashed into another ship and drowned, and he'd received a telegram from his wife when she reached England saying, saved alone. All his kids had just died. And it's on board the ship as he's going across now to meet with his wife at the same spot, roughly, in the Atlantic, Pacific, whichever one, um, where he is weeping, mourning, and is able to then write this song. That even when storms roll and seas below and Satan has his plans, it's still well with my soul. <sighs> Incredible, right? And beautiful. And I don't know about you, I think I've had moments like that in my life where to the naked eye, my life sucks, and yet somehow I'm still able to say it's well with my soul. I don't know about you, I think some of us can say that there are moments you can point to times where there is just nothing good about that thing that had happened. But in the midst of it, you're able to feel something, someone, holding your soul. I hope you've had moments like that. Well, I don't know. I sort of hope you do, but I know that tends to mean that you've experienced great pain, and I'm sorry. Um, but for me, I have experienced those moments, and yet there are also plenty of moments 
where when the externals are going badly, I don't even really think to ask, how's my soul doing? I just assume, well, it must be struggling, seeing as the outside is struggling, right? I'm not sure I would even know a lot of the time if my soul was doing well when I'm in the midst of struggle and loss and grief and pain and doubt and fear. Can you resonate with that? It's like, don't ask me how my soul is doing. Can't you see what my life is like? How do you expect me to be doing? It's like cruel of you to even ask. You know, the psalmist tells us to say to your soul, hey, soul, why are you downcast within me? I don't ask that question that often. A lot of the time I just assume, well, if it's going really well, then my soul is doing really well and it feels really great. And then when things on the external are difficult or painful, I don't think I've trained myself. I don't think many of us have trained ourselves to expect that there could be a surprise like Christopher Stafford found, that, yeah, objectively speaking, this sucks. But surprisingly, I've got this well of life inside me. Surprisingly, I can still say my soul is well. In fact, it can be so well that I can write one of the most beautiful songs ever written that's going to bless people for generations. And yet that's possible. It is possible. Your soul could be well right now. How would you know? It could be possible that despite all kinds of onslaught, despite Satan thinking he's had his way, there, there is still access somewhere else that could fuel our souls, that could give us access to life color, like we're saying in this series. But I'm not used to asking the question. I'm certainly, I'm, I'm certainly not used to figuring out how to get there. And I suppose more importantly, as a community, I'm not sure we always know how to help each other get there. If you know someone who's really in pain, who's struggling, who's lost, what is the correct response? to help them get to a point where they're able to say, it's well with my soul. Because churches are sometimes quite difficult places to struggle, aren't they? It can be quite hard to be honest. How are you doing? Yeah, fine, I better say that. Otherwise someone will you know, attack me with some prayer or something and I wasn't ready for that. Or you're supposed to say, you know, too blessed to stress or God is good all the time. Or like any other response is sort of unacceptable. It can be difficult to struggle in church, honestly. Because we sort of do all really want to be a joyous people overflowing with life. And so sometimes we can sort of force everyone to comply and act that way. That's not good. On the other end of the spectrum, I think we're often quite loving. Not everyone necessarily in this room, but, but we're all trying to become more caring and loving. And so there is sometimes that desire in church. Let's be really sympathetic and caring. Wow, the externals are hard in your life. So let's fix the externals. And we don't really have the difficult conversation about, well, is your soul well? Well, don't ask me that. I lost my job. I'm sure, like, but your soul could actually still be fine. In fact, that's probably more important. So those are some of the questions I have been wondering about. What can make your soul so well that you can sing like we were in worship? You know, your presence is enough. That's all I need, even in the midst of pain and loss. How can we, how can we be a community that gets each other there and helps each other to stay in that space where we're able to sing those songs and completely mean them? Uh, and so we're going to study a portion of a letter together now. Uh, the backstory is Paul's writing to a church in a town called Colossae. Colossae is in a valley in modern-day Turkey, a very beautiful valley. Uh, at one end of it is another old town called Hierapolis, which you may have encountered in your Bible mentioned once or twice. Hierapolis is at a hot spring where these incredible mineral deposits pour out down a hillside. Um, and as they crystallize, you get these white, massive, human-scale bird baths down the side of a hill uh, that are then filled with clean water, which reflects the blue Turkish sky to make these pools of emerald blue 
filled, you know, white things that you can swim in. It's called Pamukkale. Uh, it's a very popular tourist destination for Russians. I had a joke about that, which won't work anymore. Um, <laughs> I think they're still welcome there. I don't really know. Um, but just down the valley from Hierapolis is this town called Colosse. A few important things for you to know for context for this conversation we're about to eavesdrop on. Paul, who's writing the letter, has never been to this church, doesn't know those people. None of them know Paul, really. Maybe, maybe by reputation, but none of them have a relationship with Paul. The church was planted by a guy called Epaphras in a man called Philemon's house. There's a whole cool letter written to Philemon about a slave of his, Onesimus, who escaped, got saved. It's very cool uh, what the gospel can do. But this letter is written to the church that meets in Philemon's, town, in Philemon's house in the town of Colossae. And it was established, as I say, by this guy, Epaphras, who got saved in another town called Ephesus on the coast. You may have heard of Ephesus. Paul, at that time, was running a church there. Lots of people met Jesus in Ephesus and would go out you know, back to their hometowns. And so this is a church that was planted as a spin-off out of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Not orchestrated, not planned, not a multi-site. Just happened, okay? This letter gets written much, much later when Paul is now in Rome under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard. And he's received some news from Epaphras about the state of the church. Most of it good, some of it concerning. And that's what occasions Paul to write this letter. Final word on this. With the exception, arguably, of the letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament, which was intended as a general letter, a kind of best of, hits CD of Paul. Every single other letter that Paul writes, even something as big and, and exhaustive as Romans, is one half of a WhatsApp conversation. You're only hearing one half of the dialogue. These letters are always in response to something specific. That's important if you want to study the Bible, because if I was to go, well, my favorite letter is well, Colossians, for example. Uh, I just really love it. It speaks to me. In fact, these two chapters are enough. I'm just going to build my, my theology and my life on these two chapters. You're very likely to end up, at best, missing something. At worst, probably wonky, because you're hearing one half of a conversation around one specific thing. So most of the letters of the New Testament leave out big ideas. You know, you'll be reading one letter and Paul just won't speak about sin or won't speak about heaven or won't speak about justification or repentance or whatever. Probably Ephesians is the one safe one, which is like a best of. All the rest are half of a conversation, which makes them very interesting to study because you have to try and figure out, well, what's the other half, right? What are the messages I don't see in this conversation? What's Paul trying to correct? And so we will discover what that is uh, in just a moment. But let's just begin with his kind of opening chat to this church, because I think it's amazing. He says some incredible stuff. So if you'll read with me from verse 1, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and from our brother Timothy. And we're writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. We always pray for you, and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which we believe come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. The same good news that came to you is going all over the place, and it's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth of God's wonderful grace. And you learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He's Christ's faithful servant, and he's actually helping us on your behalf right now. He's told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. 
So we've not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. Just pause there. How's that for a start to a letter? Quite a cool letter to receive. Paul's being very friendly. He's um, told these people who don't know him, who weren't expecting anything from him, that he prays for them a lot. That's a bonus. Oh, cool. Nice to know. This guy Paul is praying for our church. That's good. He says we love people well. It's nice to know we have that reputation. Thanks, Paul. Turns out, and then he sort of name drops Epaphras just to make sure you know, we understand we have this friend in common uh, on Facebook. Okay, maybe I'll, I'll accept Paul because we both know so-and-so. Um, and he is now about to start to tell them some specific things that he's praying for them for. Okay, that's where we're up to in the letter so far. So we've not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. Right, so this is the first thing on the shopping list. It's the first thing Paul's wanting to tell them he's been praying for them for. So what's he said? I'm praying for you guys to know God more. I'm praying for you to ex- have sort of experiential knowledge of him, which turns into wisdom, and if that happens, if, if that prayer is answered, if you know him more, it will result in you being able to live lives that please him more and result in fruit. Oh, and then you can also keep on knowing him more as well. So let me sort of summarize what Paul is saying. He is excited for them to live lives that please God. That in itself is a great question, right? So if you were to catch yourself asking well, what would please God? How do I live to please God? Great question. You're asking the right question. Better than the question most of us are asking, which is how do I please everybody else? Most of the time, right? What does society reward? What does my boss expect of me? What do people like when I do it? Paul says, no, I want you to live to please God. I want you to live to honor God. That is the route to most satisfaction. And the way you get there, friends, listen to the link he's made. The way you please God is not with more discipline. It's not with more diligence not with more duty, it's not with more emotional experiences, it's with more knowledge, right? That's what he says. I'm praying that you have knowledge of him. I pray that you know him, that you soak your brains in him. Knowledge of God results in lives that please God. Not guilt, not duty, not discipline even. Helpful as all that stuff is. Not just sort of grit your teeth, white knuckle obedience. I have to, he said I must. Know him, just know him. And knowing him will result in this kind of wisdom that shows you how to live. You will know the truth, the truth will set you free. It is the grace of God which teaches you to say no to unrighteousness, right? It's about believing, knowing and believing, which will allow your lives to please God. And as much as I want you to have complete knowledge, it'll never stop, he says, and you'll grow as you keep on knowing more about God. I just think this is cool, right? It's one line. But he's saying, this is not academic knowledge that can stop. This is a lifetime of intimacy with God. You soak your brain. You marinate your soul. You know more about what he's like, and you see him for who he is. And that teaches you how to live in a way that pleases him, produces fruit. Very cool. So that's one of the things Paul's been praying for this church for. Thank you, Paul. I hope you get that. That sounds great for us. We also pray, verse 11, that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power. Just pause there. Paul's been praying for them to be strengthened with power. So what would you expect that power to look like? And if I hear that someone from some other city has been praying a whole lot for me, 
thank you, we know someone in common, he's heard that I love people well, all that, you know, Paul's intro. He then tells me he's been praying for me to know more about God so I can live a life that pleases God. Cool, thank you. The next thing he says he's been praying for is, Paul, I've been praying that you have loads of power, that you experience the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm expecting that what he's thinking about is miracles, right? Gifts, power in my life. The ability to blow open prison doors, glow in the dark, heal sickness, produce money out of fish's mouths, that kind of stuff, which we see in Scripture and today. Miraculous is all part of this. But listen to what Paul actually wants them to experience power for. I think this is amazing, right? I pray that you'll be strengthened with all this glorious power so that you will have endurance and patience, which is kind of the opposite of miraculous changing of your circumstances, isn't it? I want the Holy Spirit so that I can make things easier. Paul wants me to have the Holy Spirit so I can endure things that are hard. Interesting. He's praying for them to receive the Holy Spirit that will give them this internal well of life that allows them to bust through difficult circumstances, not just always change them. Next one, easy to skip, very important. May you be filled with joy. He's longing for them to have joy. He's chained to a God under house arrest somewhere else, and he has so much joy, he's praying to give it away to some others in a city he's never even met. Always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people, who live in the light, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Awesome. Okay, cool. That's, that's an intro I can work with. Paul, thank you for the stuff you're praying for me for. I understand why I need it. Great. He's about to kind of go off topic now. Unless you remember, we're listening to half of a WhatsApp conversation, in which case, actually, he's about to get to the main point. But it's going to seem a little strange because he's busy... You know, quite a rational guy talking about the things he's praying for, for these people to have, you know, a sort of decent Christian experience. And now he's about to break into, I don't know what the right way to call it, a sort of a rap, a spoken word, slam poetry, praise singer thing about Jesus. Like, it's kind of rhyming. It's very intense. Um, and if you weren't looking for the reason why, you'd think, well, Paul's just been overwhelmed. I don't know. Like he just loses control of himself when he says the word Jesus. Then he just starts writing all this stuff. But let's remember, Epaphras had told Paul something about what was going on in this church, and so he's writing to them on purpose. So actually, now he's getting to the big deal. Spoiler alert, the big deal is the people of Colossae were sort of hedging their bets. They were very keen on Jesus. They liked all this stuff, but they were also still quite reliant on some of the other things that used to make them feel safe, like their political systems, or their Jewish traditions, or their Greek philosophies, or their insurance policies, right? or the conspiracy theories that we like to talk about, or the you know, reliance on the government to sort things out. Or you can probably put yourself into the story, can't you? That I do trust God, but I have some other things that I really can't do without. And I, I feel very insecure if you were to threaten those things. I need, these are non-negotiables for life to work. Jesus might be one of them, but I have some other non-negotiables too. And Paul is concerned because here's the thing. Jesus is very jealous. He is not open to those kinds of relationships. He is not open to sharing with you. The word lukewarm comes to mind. And I don't know if you remember how Jesus feels about that. But he wants all of you, and he won't be satisfied until he has all of you. This 
arrangement only works when you completely rely on him, not when you partially rely on him. And so Paul's going, these guys are missing out. They're jeopardizing their whole experience of God because they're like hedging their bets. And so this is what he starts to tell them about Jesus. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything. In the heavenly realms and on earth, he made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world, things you didn't even know you don't know about. Jesus is in charge of, is what Paul is saying. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. He is holding the atoms in your body together right now and preventing the electrons from spinning out. Christ is also the head of the church, which means this thing that you are at right now, he is in charge of and is orchestrating every part of. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he's reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he's brought you into his own presence and you are holy amen, and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. Paul is saying to Colossians, Paul is saying to you and I, Jesus is enough. He's enough. We have been taught to believe that he is part of the solution, but you know, the world today speaks a lot about power. Either you have it or you don't. Justice, either you've received it yet or you haven't. There's all sorts of other stuff we believe we need. The provision, the healing, the protection, the comfort, the certainty, all these other things, which are great. Jesus is saying, even if you have not yet received justice, even if you have not yet been uplifted and you're still being taken for granted, even if you are still unwell and your financial future is still insecure, even if no one cares, even if it is painful, even if everything was taken away from you and when you thought you had nothing left, you lost even after that and your heart is ripped out, even when you're still racked with anxiety and doubt, friends, Jesus somehow is still enough. And you'll be able to say, it is well with my soul. When to the naked eye, it looks like your life should be unbearable you'll be able to say, you know what? It is so well with my soul. I've got joy to give away. It is so well with my soul. Satan, do your worst. It is so well with my soul. It bursts out into love for others. It is so well with my soul that through it all, through it all, I can say it's well with me. And Paul says, I want you to have that. I want you to have that experience. I want you to commit yourself to chasing that life. Please don't hedge your bets. Don't have other insurance policies. Jesus is enough, and he is only open to those kinds of arrangements. He is not open to being one of a couple of things you've hedged your bets on. He's not interested in that kind of relationship. He's enough. I suspect that may be the main point. <laughs> But as I've read this, 
I've been wondering what was motivating Paul to go to all, this, all these lengths. I'll just finish this section of the letter for you. He says from verse 24, I'm glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I'm participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God has given me this responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but in the coming of Jesus, it's gone public. Now it has been revealed to God's people, for God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you the assurance of sharing his glory. You might be familiar with the NIV version of that. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul starts by saying, ever since we heard about you, we haven't stopped praying for you. In fact, we love to pray for you. I pray for you loads. I've gone to this massive expense of sending you a letter, which, by the way, at that stage, was an incredibly expensive thing to do. Have someone transcribe it, lock it in a briefcase, chain it to someone's arm if it was a mafia movie, pay him weeks and weeks of labor, you know, wages to go off and deliver this thing. It was incredibly expensive to send a letter. So Paul's saying, I'm praying for you all the time. Like crazy, I'm praying for you. So much it's like labor pains almost. I'm paid to send you this letter. I'm suffering on your behalf, willing to suffer more. And I consider it a joy to do. And I kind of ask myself, like, but why? Like, why are you going to all these lengths, Paul? You don't even know these people. They're not expecting anything from you. You don't owe them anything. You didn't plant this church, right? So someone in Olive Tree meets Jesus, gets baptized. Then because God is punishing them, they get transferred to East London. And they're there. And because it's just what comes naturally, they start a group of people talking about Jesus. It turns into a church. It's not an olive tree. We didn't plant it. We've not funded it. We've not supported it in any way. We don't know them. They don't know us. At some stage, person X returns here and you hear some stories about how things are going on in their church. They're great. They love Jesus. They love people really well. They've got loads of faith. They're a bit wishy-washy though. They're also quite into some other stuff and they're not completely relying on Jesus. And you get so stressed about this, so exercised about this. You're praying night and day. You're contending for them. Lord Jesus, I want you to give them knowledge that results in them being able to please you and have fruitful lives. Lord Jesus, I want you to give them joy so they're thanking you all the time. Lord Jesus, I want you to give them your Holy Spirit so they have endurance, right? You're like really praying, capital P, capital raying. And at the end of all that, you're like, and that's still not enough. I'm going to send them the most expensive letter anyone's ever, you know, find gold paper, write it on there in unicorn blood, send it down there. And I guess the question would be, well, why would you do all of that? You know, they weren't expecting it from you. They don't know you. And friends, we've got to ask questions like that because the Bible is not some fable about mythical people that never really lived, right? It's very possible to over-spiritualize the Bible. This is a document about normal, ordinary people having real experiences, responding to a real God. There needs to be some internal logic to what they're doing. You don't get to just check out and go, well, Paul's just Paul. He does whatever he does because who knows? What would have to happen to you to make you behave in that way? Why do you think Paul is doing this? To me, there are only a few explanations, right? Either he is racked by guilt, feels he owes them something, but that doesn't make sense. Paul's the gospel, I mean, the apostle of grace. He doesn't even believe in guilt. Or maybe he's planted the church and he feels like his reputation is attached to it going well. He didn't. His reputation is not attached. Or else, like crossfitters and people who watch Stranger Things and runners and people who've ever tasted Huberto's ice cream. Maybe he can't stop talking about this stuff because he just loves it. He just does it because he wants to. That's probably the most boring but most realistic explanation, right? 
I don't need encouragement to start talking to you about Formula One and how unbelievable this season is going to be. And if you would like me to speak to you about the gospel of McLaren, I'm happy to. But like, I'm not doing that out of duty or being forced to. You know, I have to twist my arm. Think about stuff that you're like that about, that you just love. You just do it because you enjoy it and you want to see other people enjoy it. That's what's going on with Paul. He so enjoys Jesus. He so loves talking about Jesus, and it gives him even more of a buzz when he sees other people just enjoying Jesus for who he is. That's the only thing that makes sense to me here, that this is both his job and his hobby, that Paul just can't help himself. He loves it. And that would be consistent with what God is like, because why, friends, does God do any of the things he does? Out of guilt? It's ridiculous. Out of duty? Job discovered, like all of us, no one has lent to God that God has to repay them. God doesn't have any duties to anyone. There's no thing he signed in the God job description that says, oh, and also be nice to people. And he was like worried about HR if he gets it wrong. Psalm 115, God is in his heavens and he does as he pleases. He's sovereign. He's doing whatever he wants only because that's what he feels like doing. He is completely motivated by his own joy. And that would be nerve-wracking for us if it wasn't for the fact that the most self-sacrificing, generous thing ever done was done by his son Jesus, which Hebrews tells us, he went to the cross for the joy set before him. It gives God joy to save you. It makes him happy to be kind to you. It pleases him to be gentle with you. He's with you because he wants to be with you. He enjoys it. You are both his passion and his hobby and his job. He doesn't have to be forced to get up in the morning and be a good God to you. It's just what he likes to do. Think about dads with their kids. My little girl turned two yesterday. And like, if I'm not looking at her, I'm looking at videos of her. Right? Like, it's a bit off, I suppose. But that's what God is like. like, like he's doing it because he wants to. And he designed you in his image. And so Paul is reaching out to these people, not out of duty or guilt or diligence, but because he wants to. Friends, if, I mean, I'm still under quite a lot of training. I'm a reasonable husband, but Byrne still has a fair amount of training to do to me. But in human relationships, right, if I decided to be romantic and, and bless my wife and honor her, and so I arrange for the children to be kept safe and entertained by people other than us, and I get rid of distractions, my phone, and whatever else, set aside time, get the food she likes, music, right? Okay, I mean, I don't need to describe too much more. With my wife, there needs to be, the animals would have to be there, the dogs would have to be there. And um, we put the time in, and we have a wonderful, I don't know, date night, weekend, whatever it might be. If at some stage during this time where I'm trying to honor her and be fully present, she was to say to me, Paul, why have you done all of this? Why have you gone to all this trouble? Why have you made all these sacrifices? The wrong answer, and friends, I hope you know this, but just in case, take notes now, right? The wrong, wrong answer would be, well, it's my duty. I, um, I've made all these massive sacrifices, things I would much rather be doing, in order to be here to honor you, because I promised once that I would. It's, it's my duty. I'm being a good husband. Okay, that's, that way lies badness, okay? That, that way lies problems for you. That is the wrong answer. Right? To talk about your duty would be dumb at that moment. What you need to talk about is, I did all this because nothing makes me happier. Right? Being with you is what I want to be. 
you are the most interesting person in my life. And so I have made all these other small s sacrifices in order to be with you because I enjoy this. That's the right answer. That way lies goodness. However, if burn in that moment was to say, makes you happy, talking about your joy, you selfish git. This is supposed to be about me. Like That doesn't make sense because it honors her most when I enjoy her, right? I'm leaning heavily on John Piper's work, just to be honest with you. It honors God most when you're with him because you want to be, because he's with you because he wants to be. The Father's heart delights in being with you, and he's longing to hear you say something similar back to him. And so it is so lopsided when we say, well, God better be happy because I would much rather be doing any number of other things, but I'm going to do this quiet time, and he better be grateful. You know? And I'm coming to church you know, through gritted teeth, but you know, it's my duty, and I'm going to try and be a good Christian. Just like saying to my wife, well, I'm trying to be a good husband, saying to God, I'm trying to be a good Christian, is dishonoring. I'm here with you because I want to be. I'm here with you because I believe you are satisfying. God is into your joy. He wants to be the source of your joy. He is not doing what he's doing out of duty. He doesn't want you to have to do it out of duty. He is the God that said, take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires in Psalm 37. Nehemiah 8, that this day is holy to our Lord. Don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. James 1, verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials. Don't moan and groan. Psalm 28, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song I praise him. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. This is what the Bible is telling you to do. That's an instruction. Rejoice in the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Have you ever wondered what the will of God for your life is? He wants you to have joy and rejoice in him always and pray all the time and give him thanks because of how much joy he's causing you. Even when you're having no fun at all, even when things are difficult, Corinthians 6 tells us, yeah, when, we, when we're punished unfairly, when we're treated unjustly, when I don't yet have what I need, yet I'm always rejoicing. Poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. Hebrews 12, where we started, we fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. If you're not enjoying it, you're not doing it right. And a relationship with God was designed to be enjoyable. He wants you to delight in being with him. So in, as we come towards the end, friend, what about the times when it's not? That's the question, isn't it? What about the times when it's not enjoyable? You know, if you were listening to me talk about the date night example, and you were really honest, some of you might have been thinking to yourselves, yeah, you say when she asks you that you're doing this because there's nothing else you'd rather do. But the truth is there probably are some other things you would rather have done, and you are doing this or for some other reason than just purely joy, right? What about those moments when you, there is value in just being obedient even though you don't feel like it towards God? What do we do when, it's, when we're having no fun, when it's difficult? I find runners very interesting on this subject, okay? Runners, I'm not one, they're fascinating to study. They've got this Bible called Born to Run, written by, a, I think, a Sports Illustrated journalist who went on a journey into the back of Mexico to discover this tribe, the Tamahumara, who run marathons up and down mountains till the age of 90. They just run. They're unbelievable. And uh, he went to try and understand what is it that makes these people, they are the best runners on earth, right? They just run like you and I breathe. And 
it's a whole interesting story and about the way modern running shoes destroy their ability to run and so on. But the kind of premise, the main point, is that if you believe running is supposed to suck, it will suck. If you start with the premise, running is supposed to be fun, it's supposed to be enjoyable, then when it's not enjoyable, you'll think, I'm doing it wrong, and you'll make some adjustments. So most of us, on the 1st of January and also the day after the comrades, think, I'm going to be a runner, I want to be a runner. And then you go out the next day, and you run in knackered old shoes that have no support left, and you try to run fast, and it hurts, and you run anyway because you were expecting it to suck, so you know, nothing's out of the ordinary. And you'll run too far, too fast, come home, think, this is dreadful, what are those runners all on about? And you'll go the next day, and the next day, and eventually you'll injure yourself, because at no point did you assume, well, this is supposed to be enjoyable, I must be doing it wrong. But if you start with the assumption, running is supposed to be enjoyable, then I'm told what you'll do is, Firstly, you'll probably run more on your toes instead of pounding your heels into dust, like all of us were trained by Nike to do. And you'll walk most of the time and only run when you feel like it. And you'll respond when it's not enjoyable and change things. And lo and behold, apparently, you'll end up really enjoying running. The same is true of marriage, right? Runners don't enjoy every morning the moment they start running. Sometimes they don't feel like it, but they run anyway because they're expecting to enjoy it. Friends, Big news, happiness doesn't start in your feelings. It starts in your will. It ends in your feelings. And some runs maybe aren't actually that enjoyable, but this run today is going to make tomorrow more enjoyable. And some date nights maybe aren't that enjoyable, but this date night tonight is going to make the rest of my life with this person more enjoyable. It's possible to be choosing your happiness, but for it to start in your will. You don't have to be a slave to, well, I felt like doing it right now. And so it's exactly the same with God. He's going, I am deeply enjoyable. And sometimes you're not going to feel like it. I'm okay with that. I'm not scared of that. Choose me anyway. Move towards me anyway. But ultimately, expect it to be enjoyable. And if you're not enjoying it, you're probably doing it wrong. Cool, right? Totally changes the way we go about chasing after God. And he's saying, if you do that, if you sacrifice the small known pleasures for the chance of this massive unknown pleasure, then your soul will be well. Yeah, right now I know this series episode. If I watch it now, it'll give me a known quantity of joy. And if I sacrifice that to be with my kids, I don't know. Maybe they'll be dreadful today, because sometimes they are, or maybe they'll be great. I don't have control when I'm choosing the relational joy, right? But the upsides are huge as a dad. I know how much joy going for a cycle right now would give me. But and I don't know how much joy I'll get from a date night with my wife. But the upsides are potentially massive. I have to be a bit vulnerable. I don't have control over the situation. Maybe she's going to tell me off for some stuff. Maybe she'll have had a bad day. But I'm going to give up on this known, small, controlled portion of joy for this unknown but potentially massive intimacy with another human being. How much more with God? You may not know what will happen this next time you hang out with him. But the upside is, it's well with my soul. And so that small known quantity of pathetic joy, to be honest, is not worth it. It starts in your will, but God is saying, ultimately, I will be the source of delight to you. I want to be that river. I want to cause your life to be in full color. So church, what kind of community do we need to be if we're going to help each other get there? That's what I'm struggling with. Because our tendency, when people say, yeah, I'm having no fun, I'm struggling, is either to beat them back into submission. No, you're supposed to be happy, right? Christians are supposed to be happy. You're supposed to have that big fake smile all the time. God is good all the time. And then you can't be honest. 
But the other alternative is that we get all sympathetic and we go, wow, the, the externals are sucking. Let me help you with the externals. And never ask the proper question. Well, what does your soul need? What does your soul need right now? And I want to be part of a church that prays those kinds of prayers. If out of your enjoyment of God, that overwhelms you and you willingly want to meet my external needs, by all means, that's what Christian kindness looks like. But never out of guilt, never manipulated, never out of duty, never shame. They really lack and I have a lot, therefore I ought to. They have access to the one who makes their soul well. They might well be doing very much better than you, even though they don't have a cent to their name. Let's ask the how's your soul doing question. What do you need from Jesus internally before we just react to the externals? I don't know if that makes sense. But we are going to be a church that believes that if I'm not enjoying it, I'm doing it wrong. God has designed me to find him satisfying. God has designed me to have joy in so much in abundance. Which doesn't mean that you're not allowed to struggle here. Of course you're allowed to struggle. We have the solution to the problem. And we're going to work with each other, I think, gently around How's your soul? What do you need from Jesus and your soul? Not just let's alleviate some pain on the externals. That can happen later. Lord Jesus, that's who we want to be. Thank you so much for making yourself available to us. God, we recognize you designed our internals. You designed our souls. And of all the things you could have given us, you knew that the best thing for us was to give you yourself. You've given us yourself. And you are enough. We declare that now. We shout it out. You are enough, Jesus. We don't need more. We're grateful for anything we get over and above you. We are so grateful for getting you. And we're going to enjoy you for the rest of eternity. Amen. It's lovely to be with you. There are people, thank you, there, there are... Um, there are people who it would give them great joy to pray with you. So even if just for their sake, uh, come and get prayer if you need it. Uh, otherwise, coffee outside and uh, yeah, let us know how we can help.